Welcome to the California History Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today is part two in our series on the artists of the gold rush. So let's continue our discussion of some of the great art from that period. Before we get started, I think it's important to remember as you listen to these episodes that the artists that we are talking about here are only the artists that we have records of. There are many artists who produced beautiful work, including women and non-Europeans, who are lost to the historical record. And then sometimes we actually have some artwork, but we know very little about the artist's biography. Let's take John Prendergast, for example. We know that he was born in England in 1815. We know he spent some time in Hawaii at one point, given that we have some beautiful watercolors from him that were painted in Honolulu. And then we know that he was in San Francisco during the gold rush and the early years of state history, but beyond that, we don't have much. And yet, one of John Pendergrass's most beautiful paintings is called San Francisco After the Fiver, which was painted in 1851. It has a beautiful composition and does not have the feel of a sign of wreckage or destruction, but rather a rebirth of a city. Another John Pendergrass painting that I like is of a procession held in California when it became a state in 1850. We can learn a lot about an artist by looking at their paintings, but it also helps to know about what happened during their lifetime, their biography. And so that's what we're going to focus on today with some of the artists who we do have biographical information from. And we're going to start today with the Nall brothers, uh, and we're going to start with Charles. Um, born in 1815 in Germany, Charles received early training from his father, who was an etcher and an engraver. Charles began as a watercolorist and received training in Germany at an academy. Due to personal issues, he moved to Paris to continue his studies at an academy there. While in Paris, he studied art by copying the masters at the Louvre and worked with human anatomy, studying at a medical school. Eventually, Charles moved with his family and a close friend to New York, where he had some exhibitions, sold some art before, like many of the painters before, sailing to San Francisco in 1851. Like, our, like most of our stories so far, Charles initially went to the mines, but after some failure, returned to his art. Him and his half-brother, who is named and goes by Art, uh, who we'll talk about more in a minute, uh, started a business focused around portraits, historical paintings, and genre scenes. Charles and his brother, in their free time, loved exercise and created a backyard gym where community members in San Francisco would work on gymnastics and bodybuilding. This foundational group would lead to the actual first gym uh, in the United States, the San Francisco Olympic Club. The Olympic Club was an important civic group in San Francisco as well. It would have its first meeting in 1860 and was located on 2nd and Market Street before moving. In the last years of Charles Nall's life, he took commissions from famous Californians like E.B. Crocker and Leland Stanford. There are many paintings that stand out from Charles Nall. Let's start with Saturday Night at the Mines. The painting shows six men in a small cabin resting after mining. There's many details and points to look at in the painting, and I encourage you to look it up yourself online and take a peek. 
One of his more interesting pieces to me is a painting titled Sacramento Indian. The focal point of the painting is the Native American at the center. His head is turned at an angle toward the artist, appearing to be focused on the person painting him. At his feet are two Dalmatians as well as two chickens. There is some speculation that the person being painted was an employee of the Thurlow Lodge, which was owned by the railroad baron named Milton Latham. There are many wonderful paintings completed about that period that are worth exploring, um, and many of them by Charles Nall. Now, let's talk briefly about Charles' brother, Arthur. We won't rehash much of the same story since the brothers were a team for most of their lives. Arthur worked on similar projects to his brother. One interesting project that Art worked on was the Overland Monthly. He collaborated with Bret Hart, who we've mentioned before and who will have an episode or two of his own later on, uh, to complete this magazine. Nall helped to create the cover artwork with Hart, uh, who focused on the editorial aspects. The Overland Monthly is an extremely important magazine, and again, another topic we'll cover in the future. It would publish most of the famous writers working in California during this early period of state history. Now, moving on from the Nall brothers, let's talk about Rufus Wright. Wright was born in Cleveland in 1832 and studied art in New York, where he worked in miniatures and portraiture. Wright is one of those historical personages where there are large gaps in our understanding. Instead, what we have to do is to look at the art to see what he was up to without an associated biographical information to fill in the gaps. This kind of thing is common when writing about people outside of the recent past. For example, I'm currently reading Jan Swafford's masterful biography of Wolfgang Mozart, and there's a key moment in Mozart's life where he produced amazing work, but we know little of what transpired at that time in Salzburg. What we are left to look at is his music, and mostly that's enough. In our case, we know that Wright went westward in the 1850s, we know that he documented the Mormon community in Utah, and we know that he eventually made it to California. The Gold Rush-themed art that Rufus Wright painted was actually produced later, perhaps based on his experiences and memories of the trip west. One of his pieces that we'll focus on located in the Oakland Museum is called The Card Players. Here's the description from the Oakland Museum. Quote, Wright likely visited California in the mining camps in 1857. 25 years later, in 1882, the year of the first National Chinese Exclusion Act, he completed this period piece. Almost certainly, the painting was intended as a commentary on the anti-Chinese fervor of the 1870s and 1880s, with clear references to Bret Hart's satirical poem, Plain Language from Truthful James, 1870. See Hart's biography for the text of the poem, more popularly known as The Heathen Chinee. And what would have been at the time an obvious contrast to the well-known scene described in Hart's poem, Wright's Chinese car player seems to have won the whole pot honestly. End quote. When Rufus Wright returned to the East Coast, he founded some important artistic institutions in Brooklyn and also painted portraits of many famous Americans. After a period of work in Brooklyn teaching and painting, he retired, and that's when we lost his trail. 
The next artist that we're going to talk about is Ernest Narjo. Narjo is one of the many French natives who came to the gold fields. He was born in Brittany in 1826 and received classical training in Paris. Ernest ultimately left for the New World in 1849, traveling around Cape Horn to San Francisco. Assuming that San Francisco would have ready-made patrons there to support his artwork, Ernest was disappointed to find that patrons were harder to come by. Ernest, like many of the artists who traveled, did not have success in the mines. While he continued to paint and draw his fellow miners and landscaped, he realized he would need to seek his fortune elsewhere. In 1852, Ernest followed some of his countrymen to an expedition in Sonora. Even though the initial enterprise failed, he did have some success in silver mining. Eventually, he returned to take up his original vocation. He became famous for his genre pieces and portraits. In addition, he often took on mural projects as well. In fact, murals would lead to Ernest's demise. While painting a ceiling mural, Ernest inadvertently had paint drip into his eyes, which would eventually lead to blindness and end his career as an artist. He was asked to sketch a series of drawings in a la California, Sketch of Life in the Golden State. The book was created by Colonel Albert Evans, who was originally from Pittsburgh, but moved west. The book is a collection of reminiscences and anecdotes about local history. Ernest's drawings are beautiful pencil sketches, typically genre pieces. One of my favorite Narjo pieces is called San Francisco Chinatown. The painting is set in the evening time as the lanterns are being lit, but you can still see some light in the sky in the distance. The colors and the mood give off a wonderful warmth and subtle beauty to the piece. Francis Samuel Marriott was a multi-talented adventurer and is one of our more interesting artists that we will touch on here. Marriott was born in London to a famous Victorian novelist, Captain Frederick Marriott, who wrote many of the famous nautical novels during this period and was an experienced mariner himself. He was acquainted with people like Charles Dickinson and other famous artists of his time. His son, given the occupation of his father, was trained in maritime activities. He joined the Navy at the age of 14. He would remain in the Navy for eight years, and during that time he would see many of the far-flung places across the world. While he wasn't formally trained in art like some of his contemporaries in art academies and the like in Europe, he was raised in a generally artistic milieu. He brought sketch pads and notebooks on many of his journeys where he'd jot down notes and draw pictures of things that he saw. Like many of his artistic contemporaries, he headed to San Francisco in 1850. In California, he was not fixated on gold and riches, unlike many of the people we've talked about so far, but on hunting exotic game. While he was in California, he had a fairly peripatetic existence, um, enjoying time in Sonoma County, as well as along the Russian River hunting. After spending some time in what would become wine country, he decided to visit the various mining regions up and down the Sierra Nevadas and the foothills along that side of California. He didn't stay in California long, though, before returning to England, heading back to handle some family stuff in 1852. He returned, or at least tried, to return to California with his wife a few years later, but was aboard a ship where there was a yellow fever outbreak, which unfor unfortunately cut their sh trip short. In 
Much of the art that we have that exists from him uh, is included in a book called The Mountain and the Molehills. The book is a kind of travel book that gives you pictures as well as descriptions and anecdotes about his time in the West, and it's worth exploring here. The last artist that we'll cover today is Frederick Auguste Winderoth. Winderoth was born in Kassel, Germany in 1819 to an artistic father who taught him the rudiments of drawing. He continued his training at an academy in his birthplace and was already teaching art by the age of 18. Eventually, the draw of the big city to move to higher artistic circles pulled him to Paris in 1845. Moving to Paris brought him in contact with the Nall family, who we've talked about before, and he ultimately followed them west. Frederick did some work in New York City and had some artistic success there, but followed the rest of the artists west. Winderoth tried his hand at mining, but after the expected failure, he went into business with the Nalls. My favorite painting of Winderoth is called Miners in the Sierras. It portrays a small group of miners in a canyon. The landscape, again, is the backdrop that steals the focus of the art. And the more you look at the artwork, you see again and again the common tropes and motifs. For example, another one of his artworks, The Miner's Cabin, Result of the Day, resembles many of the paintings that we've looked at before. A group of miners huddled in a small circle, one miner sleeping in a bunk bed, and certainly one thing that you walk away from a lot of this art is this romanticized picture of the gold rush. And once you see a resourceful small group of miners working to strike it rich, as opposed to what became the reality of large businesses investing in heavy equipment and expensive mining technology to procure gold that was no longer easily available. This romanticized picture of the gold rush would become so long-lasting in our imagination that it persists today. Many people view the gold rush through this romanticized lens, and it really is the artists who helped play a large role in creating this image. Hopefully this set of podcasts gave you an introduction and a background to some of the most important artists working in the gold rush era. A few bit of homework assignments for you if you're interested in investigating and learning more about the art and artists of the Gold Rush era. The first thing you can do is visit the Oakland Museum of Art and see the Gold Rush collection. I tried to avoid getting bogged down in the descriptions of the art, as to describe in my mind would do it a disservice to the art itself, as my descriptions would pale in comparison to viewing the art for yourself. Second, you can do what I've always encouraged people to do after listening to episodes that intrigue them, which is to pick up a book. Uh, the book that I relied on for these two episodes is called Art of the Gold Rush. It came out in 1998. I'll link the book in the description for you so you can more easily access it. Beyond the simple descriptions of the artists, the book gives you a better grasp of the art, and its place in the milieu, as well as art history. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.